Welcome back to Camp 8, the podcast about people, forests, and how we connect. This is Eli Sagor here again with Kyle Gill. How you doing, Kyle? I'm doing well. It's another beautiful day to be alive, Eli. How have you been? I've been doing really well. It's uh, We're now on week three of the online National Advanced Silviculture Program, this program that is normally a real, well, it still is this year too, a highlight of the summer, but it's usually very different. I've mentioned it before on the podcast. Usually we have everybody, you know, 35, 40 people gathering at the Cloquet Forestry Center for two intensive weeks. This week it's all on Zoom. And, yeah. You know, Zoom How is that shit? How has that shift been from an educational perspective? Oh, it's been fine. You know, we've we've got some practice with this now. We're getting good at it. We're using, you know, we've got a variety of ways to engage people. We're using breakout rooms and, and a variety of different online communication strategies. And honestly, I, I think, you know, the feedback we're getting is that it's going better than most of us, myself included, expected. But it's really different. You know, it's, um, we're, we're also seeing the limitations of the technology. And so, uh uh, you know, and, and this this whole uh, environment that we're in now is is why we're talking to all of our listeners now on Camp 8. I mean, this is mm-hmm. um, and I, I, I hope listeners agree they're still here, maybe if you're if you're listening to this episode. But uh, it's you know, it's 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 uh, had its upsides as well as its challenges. You've mentioned that it's been interesting for working through constraints as well. I know you asked me to help give a field tour and did we did a different field tour than we've ever done, a virtual live virtual field tour. Uh, so maybe the constraints are have been somewhat helpful as well. Uh, it's it's that was awesome. Yeah. So as part of the National Advanced Silviculture Program, yeah, we we, we did this uh, live streamed thing. We streamed live to YouTube. And I was just uh, talking to some folks earlier this morning, Kyle, about that, Um, you know, and I think we're going to be doing more of that. You know, we're at a time when, yeah, just like you're saying, the constraints that we're all facing are are forcing us to think differently about how we communicate with each other, how we connect. As I said, that's really affecting, um, you know, our presence here on Camp 8 with this podcast. And um, so, yeah, it's different, uh, but but it's it's been good, too. Is that tour, for my own uh, recollection, is that tour available on YouTube? It sure is. Sustainable Forest Education Cooperative on YouTube. Yeah, it's there. Can I subject myself to my own tour uh, ramblings? You did a great job. Yeah, subject <laughs> yourself. It's good. What's new with you, Kyle? Well, another cool tour opportunity is that uh, we're doing a virtual tour in association with CFANS and UMD Alumni Association. They came to us with a request to do their, they're giving behind the Bulldogs behind the scenes tours of a variety of um, cool spaces in the Duluth uh, region. And so they asked us to do a virtual tour and um, we said, sure, let's try this. So their, their style of tour is a little bit different. So we pre-recorded a bunch of video and uh, I, this last couple of weeks, I've been working on a storyboard and I hand that storyboard off to um, the UMD people to actually put that video together. So the video is not live, uh, but the narration will be live. So that then we can have some question and answer with the uh, with people that are tuning in. So for us, it's a really good chance to show off the forest in a different way. We'll use drone video, which you, uh, so we're going to get some above the canopy views that are somewhat rare in general because we're not birds uh, and we're not all watching a live drone or anything. So that'll be a really cool opportunity, I think, to see the, to show off the forest in a different way. And I'll base it in our, uh, in our mission, which is to connect people um, and learn about northern forest ecosystems and do research and applied research education and outreach related to northern forests um 
So it'll be a fun hour. I think it's next Wednesday at noon. And if people are interested in tuning in, uh, there should be a link to the UMD page on our webpage, which is cfc.umn.edu. So yeah, it should be for, fun. For folks from outside the area, UMD is the University of Minnesota Duluth. We're all part of the University of Minnesota system. And uh, and yeah, that really should be a fun event. So if you're interested, it'll come out about a week after this podcast hits. So August 19th, 2020, go to the Cloquet Forestry Center website and uh, and you can get the info there. Uh, but let's. What's this episode ten for us, Eli? What did you What did you get up to this week? Well, this is another fun one. Uh, this week we are all about private lands. We talked to Mike Kilgore. Mike is the department head of the University of Minnesota Department of Forest Resources. He's been a longtime policy researcher, and we, we talk more about his background in the interview. So I won't say too much more now. But uh, family forests, Minnesota family forests, and why don't we go there now, Kyle? Let's uh, let's hear the interview, and then you and I will be back to uh, to talk a little bit more at the end. Welcome back to Camp Eight. This is Eli Sagor here today with Mike Kilgore. Mike is the head of the Department of Forest Resources at the University of Minnesota. And uh, he has had a long career as an economist and, and uh, as a researcher in forest economics and policy at the university. Before that, Mike was executive director of the Minnesota Forest Resources Council. He was the, Mike, you can tell me if there's a better term, but the founding chair is what I want to say of the Lassard Sam's Outdoor Heritage Council. Yeah, that, that's, that's correct. Great. And, uh, and as department head, he's been active in, in research and administration at the university now for, uh, for, for a while. Mike, welcome. It's good to have you. Thanks, Eli. It's good to be here. So, Mike, the focus of our uh, conversation today is Minnesota's family woodland owners and, and Minnesota's family forest land. So right off the bat, let's, let's agree on a term. They've been called non-industrial private forest landowners. They've been called family forest owners. How do you, what do you, how do you like to refer to that group? Oh, I, I like to refer to them as family forests. Um, but as you say, they've had many terms over the years, um, woodland owners, family woodlands. Um, but we'll, we'll stick with family forests. And actually it's interesting as you talk to woodland owners or family forest owners over the years, as you and I have done, um, the owners themselves have certain terminology that they like to they use. Sure so, uh, yeah. so hopefully not offending some of the podcast listeners who may not like or prefer the term we use, but we're going to go with family forests today. This sounds great. And, and uh, we'll, we may go back and forth a little bit. I'll try to stick to family forest owners. That's the term I use most often as well. So uh, we'll see. But folks may hear us going uh, using multiple terms interchangeably. There you go. Uh, so, Mike, what do we know about this group? Um, how, you know, do you want to give us just a basic overview with some numbers? And, uh, you know, who are these folks? Yeah, well, you know, they're a very important uh, topic when it comes to research and forest. You know, we, we can look at the ecology of forest and how plants respond to certain environmental conditions and man-induced conditions. Um, but one large area is just looking at the, uh, the ownership and the management across the ownerships. And when it comes to family forest owners, it's a very large share of our nation's ownership. Uh, it's about 40% on a national level. And if you look at the owners of forest land in Minnesota as a group, family forest owners are the single largest share at about 36, 37%. So think about as you drive up north, 
and you're going through all of that forest land, you know, that's going by you on the highway, about one on every three acres on average is owned by a family forest owner, which is, you know, it's a term, but it really is a very diverse group of owners. It's people like you and I and, you know, families, individuals, husbands, wives, uh, extended family that own forest land. It excludes companies and investment firms that own forest land. So it's it's like the listeners of your podcast for the most part, people who have either inherited that land or purchased that land, but they're individuals, extended families, uh, or immediate family owners. Yeah, that's right. And I'm glad you clarified. So when we talk about that 35, 36% of folks who are family forest owners or individuals and families, as they're sometimes called in, in uh, research reports, um, that, that does not include the very large timberland investment management organizations and other large corporate owners, correct? That, that's right. Um, and so, you know, if you would have um, wound the clock back 20 or 30 years, we would lump these landowners in with industry, uh, forest industry owners or investment owners of forest land. But in the last two decades, we've really, as a res- research community, tried to look at family forest owners as a unique group because they have many different reasons for owning forest land oftentimes than people uh, than companies or incorporated entities that are owning the land for oftentimes very different purposes so mike let's let's talk a little bit about that um you talk about kind of uh, interests and and motivations and so on so what, what, what do we know about woodland owners and how they understand their lands, how they think about managing their lands? What are they doing on those lands? It's a super diverse group. And so I know it's hard to summarize, but what, what do we know about the group? Well, it is a diverse group. Um, you know, we, we've studied them a lot. Um, we know that Minnesota's family forest owners are very similar uh, to family forest owners in the adjoining states of Wisconsin and Michigan. Uh, we have a lot of them, by the way. We have, depending on how you count the uh, family forest wood, uh, woodland property, there I'm going mixing up the terms, but um, <laughs> all the way down to about an acre, there's about 200,000 of family forest owners in the state of Minnesota alone. That's a large number. And so if you start looking at maybe 10 acres or more of family forest owned uh, woodlands, we're looking at still north of 100,000 different owners. So that, that's a lot of individuals. Um, we know that those individuals own the land for lots of different reasons. In Minnesota and many parts of the Midwest, hunting is probably the most important reason they own land. They own land for as a place to escape. If they live in a larger suburban or urban area, they have their property that they escape to for either you know recreation, it could be skiing, it could be snowmobiling in the winter, could be hunting in the fall, camping, just, you know, doing whatever. Um, But we know that that's that aesthetic um, recreational aspect of ownership is really important. We also know that, and our surveys have borne this out time and time again, that the things that are rated lowest in terms of why family forest owners have their property is for timber harvesting or commercial timber production, growing trees uh, to produce uh, products that could be sold in the marketplace. Uh, that, I mean, it's, that's been the case for many years. Um, a number of my studies have repeatedly demonstrated that, that 
they just rank that as the lowest reason. But that said, we know that over time, over half of the family forest owners harvest trees. So that tells us what, while that, while they're not owning that land for that purpose, there's an opportunity, either someone tells them about, you know, the fact that there's a market for their trees, or they understand that, that the forest could be improved for wildlife purposes, which is a very important reason through harvesting or some other management technique, they end up conducting a commercial timber harvest. So that's a really an interesting phenomenon where they don't go into the ownership or they don't um, inherit the ownership with that as an expectation. But over time, we see that that inevitably occurs on over half of the land. So that's a fascinating sort of um, difference, isn't it? You know, students coming into our department, learning about silviculture and forest management are going to learn a lot about ecosystems. They're going to learn a lot about GIS, geographic information systems, and how we can quantify and understand complex systems and processes. Uh, they're going to learn about timber harvesting and, and forest operations and all of these things. But it almost sounds from what you just said, Mike, like... Um, you know, on, on family-owned forest land, um, the decision to harvest timber, uh, at least in some cases, might be more opportunistic and, and perhaps a little bit less informed by all of those things. Is, is that, do you see that as, a, as accurate or um, how would you respond to that? Yeah, you know, I think that's a very accurate statement that, you know, again, I'm, I'm generalizing because when you have a couple hundred thousand of these owners, it's really, you know, you're always going to find the exception to the rule. There are some landowners, particularly these family forest owners that have large tracts of land. And by the way, the average, we're talking about on average in the state of Minnesota, 40 to 50 acres. That's the average size of a, of a forest land parcel. Most parcels are sold in increments of 40 acres. It could be a 40, 80, 120 acre. But if you just looked at the, the average, we're talking about 50, 60 acres. Is, so they're not large parcels. But we do know there are, and I, you and I both know some family forest owners that have uh, accumulated a fairly large holding or multiple holdings in different parts of Minnesota that might be uh, north of 1,000, 2,000 acres. Those types of owners uh, tend to start mirroring what we would see in uh, a forest industry holding. You know, they do own it for timber production oftentimes. Uh, recreation is still very important. In fact, uh, one uh, family forest owner that I know has a couple thousand acres and hunting is the primary reason still for that individual and that individual's extended family. But that said, they still harvest timber. They still are actively managing that land, planting trees, doing silvicultural um, prescriptions to improve the health and the growth of their forest. But that's the exception and not the rule. The rule is that they own the land, they they use it for recreation, it's a small property, and they find out about um, an opportunity to harvest timber. Oftentimes it could be a, f a family member, a friend, or they heard about it uh, some way that, oh, geez, you know, the person down the road, they drive by and they see an operation going on and that person tells them, yeah, you know, I was getting $25, $30 a cord for my aspen and I had 25 cords of aspen per acre on my property and you start doing the math and they go hmm I wonder yeah. and uh, you know that's just one example of how someone who really didn't go into the ownership or inherit the ownership with that 
idea in mind, all of a sudden, you know, a, a year or two later, they may have a commercial timber harvest. Uh, other reasons are they realize either themselves or through some assistance of a, a professional or others that by um, having an old stand of timber, they may be losing some of the opportunities for habitat that they might be expecting on that property. They may be seeing a loss of, of the types of trees that they were hoping for, for a variety of reasons. It could be for aesthetic, it could be for wildlife. So um, we know that economics doesn't always play a role. In fact, I've done some studies that have looked historically about the amount of private woodland timber that comes to the marketplace and the price of timber. And in, in at least in the this part of the world, there's very little correlation between those two variables. That means that even with high timber prices, we, that might not be enough to incentivize a landowner to sell his or her timber that's on their property. Yeah, it's just a fascinating, um, it's a fascinating situation. And I want to talk a little bit about, you know, I just mentioned and, and, you know, we discussed some of the many factors that researchers and professional foresters are considering as they make harvest scheduling decisions, silviculture, as they develop silvicultural prescriptions to guide, you know, the, the trajectory and growth of these forest ecosystems to, you know, to produce multiple values, recreational, aesthetic, wildlife, habitat, and all these things. And if we have a situation in which it's more common on, you know, 36% of the land base for these decisions to be more opportunistic and maybe less planful, you know, we, we, um, that's not exactly optimal. And so uh, one of the things, Mike, that you have investigated for years is opportunities to um, invest uh, through public policy, uh, to invest resources to inform and guide and assist with private forest, um, excuse me, with, uh, I'll try to, try to use the right term here, with, with uh, family forest land management. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about, you know, what is, what's the rationale for that? I know there are a number of different programs, but let's just start with the basics. What's the rationale for taking taxpayer dollars and investing those dollars or spending those dollars um, to inform and, and influence private land management? Sure. So, so of course, anytime you use taxpayer dollars, there has to be a public interest in, in mind. And so in the case of family forests, while certainly they are privately owned, a lot of the different goods and services that come from those land, the broader public has an interest in, all the way from timber supply, the fact that um, that timber supply helps support a very strong and important part of the economy. Uh, the, the wildlife habitat that is created on that property has an impact because the wildlife are not confined to a particular 40 acre parcel, but uh, we know that, that, that wildlife know no bounds, right? Um, when it comes to water quality, we know that some of the best water quality in the state is not coincidentally located in forest land. There's a, there's a reason for that. It's because we have continuous vegetation cut and, uh, on, the, on the land so that by the time that rainfall hits the, the stream or the river or the small creek, that it, a lot of that has infiltrated into the ground or has really stopped the flow of, of any nutrients or other types of sediments to move into the water. So there is a public, a broader public interest in private land management because a lot of these, um, these goods and services, um, while they come from private lands, they have a broader public benefit. And if you look back at the history, you know, um, 
the federal programs have been the, the primary uh, means for providing these public policies. They're not the ex exclusive one, but when you look at um, financial incentives, for example, that's a very common one. I mean, they go back, you know, decades. Now, some of the, you know, going back, at least property taxes, which is a state-sponsored program, but some of those go back nearly 100 years. So we have a long history in the United States of promoting good management of family forest lands. And we do that. And, and, and if you look back at the early years, you know, a lot of it was on timber production. And the the another rationale was not only was there a public interest in that, but uh, on their own, these landowners are not willing to make an investment in many cases uh, by planting trees only to know that, that that tree crop, if you want to call it that, might not be mature enough to go to marketplace or to create the habitat that's going to be optimal for wildlife for 50, 60, 70 or more years. I mean, think of beautiful old stands of white pine or red pine that are 150, 200 years old. Um, there's a beautiful aesthetic value there, but there's also an important timber value. You know, the markets themselves, there are very few signals that tell a landowner, make an investment of several hundred dollars an acre now, and you might, you know, if you can stave off wildfire, insects, and you can wind produce storms, wind yeah. storms, everything. Um, you might have a good product in 50, 100 or more years. So there's another rationale of making that investment to try and um, help that landowner recoup some of that initial investment again um, with the understanding that whatever is produced, whether it's timber or cleaner water or improved wildlife habitat, there's a public interest in that. Yeah, it really is. Uh, it really is interesting. So when you talk about these very large owners, different from family forest owners, you know, they're going to be thinking about harvest scheduling and they're going to be thinking, you know, across many thousands of acres. It does make sense taking a long view to make investments now that even that, you know, might not pay off for 50, 60, 70 or many more years. But you're right for someone with 40 acres who, you know, that's a, the, the, the economics of timber harvesting are such that you can't do much um, economically on, you know, less than, uh, you know, 10 or 20 acres. Uh, it just doesn't pencil out. Yeah, so these, these programs can help. So Mike, can you tell us a little bit, give us maybe an overview of, of what are the major approaches? So you've mentioned a couple, you've mentioned cost sharing a little bit, and, and you made some reference to property taxes. So how do these programs come into play? Because I one of the things I know about uh, family forest owners is they really value private property rights. They, oh, they yeah. want to retain the the uh, the opportunity to make their own decisions about the use of their land. So regulation is has not been a big focus. So what are the kinds of investments that have been made through public policy to inform and influence that management? Yes. Right. So at the at the federal level, uh, the the federal programs that are geared towards assisting family forest owners are primarily cost share assistance, and that has evolved over the years. Um, there was a period of time, again, early on when it was reforestation. There was a great concern about the lack of reforestation after some disturbance. It could have been, you know, um, uh, a natural disturbance, but it could also have been human induced, like a, a timber harvest. And so there was uh, in, uh, an initiative to get uh, the cost of reforestation down to family forest owners. Then there was a period where there was a strong emphasis on getting them to be more active stewards of their land. So a lot of the assistance went into having forest management or stewardship plans written for those lands. That still exists today, but 
there was a period of time not that long ago when that was a very strong focus. Um, you, if you have a certain um, habitat for a certain species that might be imperiled, endangered, or of just a very uh, special concern within a state, um, there are some programs that will help underwrite a lot of the cost if you, the landowner agrees to manage the property to improve the habitat for that particular wildlife species. So those are the primary federal programs, and these exist in almost every state, any state with any significant amount of forest land. If you're a family forest landowner, um, you can uh, look for some opportunities to help reduce, in some cases, um, eliminate the cost of certain land management practices. Um, the big program that states provide is are through reduced property taxes. So if you look, if you think about uh, a landowner and uh, who owns 40 or 80 acres of forest land, their biggest annual ongoing costs is the property tax. They may have some insurance costs, but you know we we have to pay our property taxes, and so that's been one way of providing some incentives to landowners that who. Um, have a, in some cases, a very large burden annually of that carrying cost of paying the property taxes. They, they apply for a program and they're enrolled and in return for reducing property taxes, they may be asked to do some things. So for example, have a management plan and agree to follow the plan. Agree not to convert the land to another use like a housing, you know, a, a site for housing or worse yet, a housing development or converting it to another land use like agriculture, which certainly happens when we're in that transition between forest and agriculture. So the property tax is very important. It's uh, common in every state. Uh, the, the annual savings can be quite substantial. And the evolution of those programs has been more, a couple things. First of all, just like the incentive programs, the early property tax programs focused on timber production. Some still do, but um, if you were to get a lower property tax rate, um, you would be uh, expected to improve the productivity of your forest. Now we still have those, but the, the emphasis is much broader. A lot of the state property tax programs uh, enroll lands with the intention of providing these different ecosystem services, Eli, you and I've talked about you know, being a good steward to make sure that we have clean water and improved wildlife habitat, diversity of plant and animal species. Um, the other thing is to, to protect that land from development. So if you are an owner of forest land and your land is experiencing a lot of development pr pressure, you're in a suburban or near a suburban urban area, property tax programs can be a very effective way of protecting that land from development. And interestingly, in a lot of the work that I've done, and a lot, some of that work includes meeting with landowners one-on-one uh, -on -one or in small groups, a lot of them have that interest at heart. They want to pass that legacy to that next generation, typically within their family. And so um, if they can see a program that protects that land for future generations, uh, a lot of times they're very interested in that. Um, I can recall some conversations with individual landowners at these meetings where that was the most important reason. Um, they would look at some type of state or federal assistance would be to ensure that the property that they've held and managed and cared for and enjoyed for the last 20 or 30 years is going to be there for their grandchildren. And they've told me that. And so to them, it's not about timber. It's not 
about making money from it necessarily. It's about protecting that legacy and, and preserving it and passing that on. Yeah, and, it, you know, as we've been talking about, there's the potential for a disconnect between landowner, you know, a landowner's planning horizon in, you know, a certain number of decades and, and what makes sense to them financially absent any intervention through these policies, cost sharing and so forth. Uh, disconnect between that and the public interest. And so it sounds like these programs can help to close that. And you mentioned this evolution from a focus of cost share programs on timber production uh, to a focus essentially on keeping forest land forested. And it sounds like, um, you know, at least the intent of these programs is to, uh, is to do that, is to bring those two interests into alignment. If a lot of landowners are saying, look, what I really want here is to keep this land the way it is so that my kids and grandkids or whomever it might be in the future can enjoy it the way that I have, um, you know, that, that focus on keeping forest land forested seems to be, um, uh, you know, something that's shared, um, pretty widely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is. And, um, even just in my professional lifetime, there's really been a marked shift in the emphasis of these programs. Uh, I don't want to say necessarily away from timber because a number of them still have that emphasis, but, uh, more, more accurately, a growth in, in an emphasis on these other different values that forests provide and having forests protected because we do know that the, the the fracturing of if you think of forest land you know flying over from the air we see these large blocks of forest one of the greatest threats are that all of a sudden we see forest land that's fragmented where no longer is it a large contiguous area but it might be fragmented by um, housing developments uh, open spaces that um, are permanent not necessarily from timber harvesting, because we know that in Minnesota, uh, with very few exceptions, when you harvest timber, um, the types of species we have, we just get, we get very good natural regeneration. So we're talking about permanent land use conversion away from forest to something else. And, and the programs have really evolved to many of them to emphasize the protection of that forest land base because it is so important for these different things we've been talking about. Right. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk in a minute about some of the future directions, whether it's invasive species, carbon accounting and things like that. But, you know, a thing it, it's interesting. I've thought a lot over the years about um, the difference between changes in the forest that we can readily see. It's easy to see a timber harvest. It's easy to see, uh, you know, forest conversion. Very different thing, as you just pointed out. So so timber harvesting keeps the, you know, and, and regenerating that forest while well, you're, you're maintaining forest cover, forest land. You're, you're just starting a new uh, cohort of trees and, and it, you know, set and changing the trajectory of that ecosystem. Uh, forest conversion can be more or less permanent. I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's, uh, it, it's rare that, that we convert land back from a development use, developed use to forest. Um, so big, big difference there. Um, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you called that out. So Mike, uh, with these programs, you know, do, do they, do they work? Uh, wh- what do you know? Cause I know you've investigated, uh, these programs through your research over the years. So what are you finding? What, to what degree do different kinds of interventions work? Um, it, of course we're generalizing, right? Um, so for some, it works quite well for others. Not so much, but what we have found in our research, and this is over you know, 20 years plus, and not just mine, but many of my colleagues, including the work you've done, Eli, is that um, these programs are a gateway. They're a gateway of connecting the landowner who has 
uh, and they've told us this time and time again. They they know their land intimately, right? They own 80 acres. They know where that back wetland is that has this certain set of characteristics, and they have this uh, stand of, of mature aspen, and they have these scattered white pines that are being used you know, for these purposes. So they know their land very intimately, but what they, what they lack in many cases is the professional uh, advice on what to do. They, they, they have these visions of, of what they would like that forest to look like, you know, five years, 10 years, 50 years down the road, but they, they're, they're, they're looking for some help professionally to get that property to where they want it to go. So these incentive programs we've been talking about, a lot of times that program um, requires them to make a connection with a professional forester. So that could be a consulting forester. That could be a forester that's um, hired by the DNR and his responsibility is to assist private woodland owners or family forest owners that we're talking about. But it's that gateway. It's that initial connection. And what we found is that once a landowner gets connected with a professional and they do something, that they're more inclined to do something else and then something else. And that's not necessarily a timber harvest, but it may be, geez, they found out that they have a potential risk on their forest of an invasive species. All right, we've got to do something about that. So with the assistance of a professional forester, they uh, understand and, and implement a practice to try and minimize or mitigate that, that risk. Well, then by having that connection, then they start thinking more about that property and they say, you know, I really would like a plan. To, to kind of lay out what my forest is, what its potentials, and what are the things I should be doing over the next five to 10 years. And so it's that gateway, that, in, that program, that incentive program is a gateway to make that connection with a professional forester, oftentimes getting a plan, because we know that, you know, in Minnesota anyway, about one in every 10 family forest owners has a plan, but we know that that plan is that connection to the professional and oftentimes leads to a lot of other things um, so, so, so that, that's why that, that connection between that landowner's intimate knowledge of what his or her property is and, and what they like about it with uh, a professional forester who has the tools to be able to help that land, landowner in whatever they want to do, whether it's managing for habitat or, you know, improving that or just providing old large trees for aesthetic purposes or a place where they can go cross-country skiing, et cetera. Um, that's, that's the reason why that connection is so important. So Mike, one of the things we talk about a lot in forestry is that forests never stop changing. You know, you start with young seedlings, they grow up, they get bigger, suddenly they don't all fit and, and you know, some trees die, some trees thrive and, and dominate over time. Forests are always changing. And in the same way, the world around our forests is changing too. And I want to talk about that for just a few minutes, what we see as the future of this kind of work. So there's a lot going on right now. Invasive species are coming in. Carbon, you know, we understand the role of carbon in uh, climate change and, and the important role that forest growth can play in tree growth. Trees are 50% carbon by dry weight. Uh, you know, and so carbon accounting is becoming more uh, a more important part of how we think about the values and, and roles of our forests. Uh, changing markets, you know, we're, we're really in a global marketplace. The high capital costs associated with our wood products industry uh, means that, you know, the, the global financial situation really directly affects markets right here in Minnesota. So um, when you look to the future as a researcher, 
What do you see as the most important research and public policy questions? What, what do we need to know as we think about the future of Minnesota's family forest lands? Well, you know, we're, you know, the the the, uh, the long term goal is just trying to figure out what makes them tick, really, and to try and provide the the tools that they need to be good stewards of their land, and and many of them are. Don't don't get me wrong, but many of them they need that assistance because they would like to be better stewards, but they just don't have that background or that time for that matter. And so, you know, we continue to, um, our, our understanding of who they are, what makes them tick, why they own land, um, continues to evolve. And that really helps with respect to um, pr providing services to them. The other thing that we're seeing is that a lot of our family forest owners are becoming more in tune to things like climate change and the role that forests can play because as you said about half the weight dry weight is carbon above and below ground and so if you look at a a, a forest and you think about you know the, the the amount of material out there and about half of that in dry weight is carbon there's a tremendous opportunity for forests to sequester carbon and we're seeing uh, carbon markets uh, have been around for a while. We're seeing some real advances in initiatives to uh, provide an opportunity for family forest owners to participate in carbon markets. Because if you think about it, like many programs, there's a real upfront cost to enrolling in some of these programs, like a carbon market program, where you have to have a, a third party come in and inventory your land and do a baseline assessment of how much carbon is there now and its growth rate, et cetera. To, that's very costly. And so up till this point, for the most, most part, only large landowners with deep pockets can afford to do that. Um, and usually the commitments are quite long. In California, it's 100 years. Uh, so most forest landowners do not think in those terms. But there are some initiatives. In fact, I read just, uh, I got an email this morning. I've been tracking uh, a a program proposal that's being put together by the Nature Conservancy and the American Forest Foundation to make uh, these carbon offset programs more readily available to the types of landowners, Eli, you and I have been talking about. And uh, there's some legislation now that is gonna be introduced at a federal level. I'm not sure if, you know, where it's gonna go, if it goes anywhere, but um, there is some strong um, uh, uh, emphasis on getting that cohort of, of forest landowners across the country um, more uh, readily positioned to participate in these programs and primarily by reducing those upfront costs, which can be really onerous. So kind of back to your question, where is it going? I think we're always going to have that emphasis on timber. It's been there for over 100 years. It will continue to be. But at the same time, we see this, this broader emphasis on the different services and the goods that forests can provide, including family forests, like carbon, like biological diversity, like wildlife habitat. And that's another area that um, we really don't know a lot about. You know, uh, you and I have done some studies together. We know that a lot of our landowners own family forest land for wildlife purposes, whether consumptive through hunting or just they like to watch wildlife or a combination of the both. Um, but, uh, but as we talk to landowners and our studies have demonstrated, they don't oftentimes see that connection between forest stewardship and changes in wildlife habitat. And so I think that's another area that we um, need to look at. In fact, you know, you, you mentioned the, the work we've been doing uh, and you and I just wrapped up a study 
and where we looked at landowners in Minnesota who have uh, reached out and, and uh, contacted a DNR forester for some help and advice about managing their land. And very few of them, interestingly, were doing so for the purposes of improving wildlife habitat. But once they started, you know, if, uh, if they were contacting them about a timber harvest, for example, um, or, or addressing an invasive species or a forest health concern, they started learning more about the opportunities by doing something, um, and that something might result in better habitat, which they're, they're very much um, interested in. So that, that understanding of why, you know, how to, how to get landowners better connected with opportunities to improve wildlife habitat is one that we're learning more about it, but there's still ample opportunity to better understand um, how to reach them, what sort of public policy tools um, might be used to affect, you know, the ultimate goal, which is better habitat. Well, Mike, uh, this has been a really good discussion. I want to thank you. Is there anything else that we uh, that that I didn't ask you? Anything else on your mind that we should discuss before we close? Oh boy, you know, Eli, we could probably talk about family yeah, feud no because kidding. it's so near and dear to our hearts. Uh, we could probably talk about it for hours, but um, yeah, you know, I think the the take home messages are that they're they're a pretty powerful force. You know, they're they are one the largest group of forest landowners, not only in Minnesota but nationally as well, and. They uh, provide lots of different things from timber to carbon to wildlife to clean water. And um, they're interested. They're, they are in, the landowners as a, as a whole, they are very interested in doing the right thing. Um, what they're oftentimes telling us is they just need to know who they can turn to to help them um, do that right thing and be a, a good steward of their land. Yeah, it's been 20 years or so that I've been working mostly in an extension capacity with this group. And I, I, I feel the same way. They're such a fascinating group. The level of resourcefulness, the commitment to good forest stewardship and conservation on their lands uh, is really an inspiration. It's wonderful to see. And, um, and, and it's, it's good to hear about some of these programs that can uh, help, us, help us to help them a little bit more effectively and, and uh, together you know, take care of that really important resource. Well, Mike, I want to thank you again for joining us here on Camp 8. Great. Hey, it's been my pleasure. Thanks, Eli. It was really a lot of fun. Well, Kyle, I really enjoyed that conversation with Mike. He's uh, got a lot to say and is pretty knowledgeable about Minnesota's family forest owner uh, population. What, what stuck with you in that conversation? Yeah, I appreciated getting to hear from Mike on this specific topic because um, it's obviously an important topic, especially when he points out that, what is it, 34, 37% of all lands in Minnesota are family forest landowner owned. Um, and I fall into that category. I've got a little bit of um, property in Minnesota. And so it was interesting to think about putting myself into that, um, into that category and how I might respond to a survey. Um, I think some of the big things is that connect, the big thing that stuck with me is that connection to land seems to always rise to the top and how we connect to land, I think is always, uh, it, that's, there's a lot of nuance to how we connect with land. Um, I think as foresters, we tend to be taught to connect to forests, not necessarily to land, but to forests through our timber bias. And we see Mike pointed out that that. Um, that rarely comes up. Timber merchandising timber value rarely comes up as a, as the highest priority for landowners. But we're it, it brings an interesting kind of dichotomy to say or together when 
we as foresters then come into those conversations, we need to be aware of the fact that we are trained to think about how to merchandise the potential timber there, that that might not be their objectives. And so we really need to turn our listening ears on um, and make sure that we're um, serving as, as uh, guides rather than directors in what they might want for their land. Um, I also thought it was a it was interesting. It wasn't talked about a lot in the interview, but invasives got brought up a little bit. And this is something that you and I have talked about a lot. And we have a lot of discussions on the philosophies of of invasives. And I think in listening to this, it was a really thought provoking section for me because I think about it a lot. And I come from the I, I've trended towards the Emma Maris rambunctious garden approach to uh, non-native invasives. And I think part of why it stems so much curiosity in me just whenever non-native invasives get brought up is that there's a lot of cultural perception brought into um, brought into our relationship with non-natives and there's potentially some colonizer guilt there there's some other a lot going on i think uh, a big reason though is that it come for me when we focus on getting rid of something in that system that is coming from kind of a negative space. And I've really tried to train myself to, yeah, be a critical thinker and think about how to improve things. But I, I try and do that from shifting, making sure that I'm focusing on things that are coming from a more positive space. So instead of saying, we need to get rid of the species because it's not from here, um, I try and shift it to, okay, well, what are my goals? If I want a quote native, um, a native plant community growing here, then I need to have goals in mind of which species. If I'm looking at getting rid of a species, that means that I need to think about how to promote those species um, that are that I actually want there. But sometimes I feel like our conversations get left at that first step of, I wanna get rid of this thing without having that more positive goal in mind of here's the future direction. The desired future condition that I want is I want, um, I want, this species over that species like yeah okay maybe that's the case but maybe getting rid of that naturalized uh species that's from europe or from asia maybe that's not the best goal or where we should spend so much of our energy so that it's due for a much longer conversation i think but my mind started spinning on thinking about our connection to land and having it come from a more positive space rather than from a a battle or war space which i think is really typical in in um american culture in general yeah, well, I'd I'd love to go there on on Camp Eight. I'd love to uh, to dedicate an episode or more to to that topic. I think it's interesting, and I also think it's interesting that that that's what stuck with you because it's something very similar um, is at the front of my mind when I think about family forest management, and it's about you know how we how we frame and understand and connect with the land is so individual. You know, it's for 20 years I've worked in extension and for about half, excuse me, about 15 years of that time, three quarters of that, it's been uh, family forest owner education and, and learning from them, working with them, offering different kinds of learning opportunities. And it's just fascinating. You know, the, 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 they're a really diverse group, as Mike discussed, uh, diverse in their approaches, the things they value, the ways that they understand land and our relationship to it. Uh, and, you know, for a lot of, on a lot of family forest uh, properties, you can imagine situations where you have, you know, hypothetically two identical properties and two adjacent landowners, you know, one on each one on each property and, and them both being really connected and committed to caring for that land 
yet doing completely different things, even, you know, informed by a professional forester through a management plan Mm -hmm. because of their different objectives and their different understanding of those things. How do invasives fit? What's the role of production? What's my responsibility to the land? Is it to help to meet our, our supply needs, timber supply needs? Is it to provide critical habitat? Is it to do both of those things, but I'm thinking about different species or different ways of meeting our collective needs than you? And it's just fascinating. I, I'm, I've been reminded so many times and inspired, honestly, by the deep commitment um, that family forest owners have for their land. And it's pretty much universal. I, I've met very, very few who, who don't feel so strongly committed to leaving that land better than they found it. Yeah. And, and the fact that we all understand what that means in so many different ways, uh, I just find fascinating. Yeah. Valuation is, is a highly personal thing and whether that's merchandise, merchandisable value or, um, uh, or whatever other values that, um, we might have just having it be there. I know when I bought my land, my, as I sorted through my priorities, my top priority, have a place to walk my dog off leash. And so yeah. <laughs> like, that's not going to get written into a forest stewardship plan other than no. that. Uh, I'm going to probably maintain trail system, but having that as like a really simple goal helped me to, to find the space that I wanted. And then the, how the, how that land then expresses itself and how I might take care of that land in order to, um, to meet that high objective of walking a dog off leash. Uh, uh, yeah, that's going to take different routes. And yeah, every, every landowner is different. We have to come in with as foresters. I think we can come in with trusting that they have, they, they want to do the best for their land and that they're going to be passionate about that land. And um, we can go into it with curiosity and learning about what they know about their land rather than always coming in with a, here's what I know about what you should know about your land. Uh, But taking that curiosity approach, I think is a, is a good thing to potentially do. Camp 8 is produced by the Sustainable Forest Education Cooperative and supported by the University of Minnesota College of Food, Agricultural, and Natural Resource Sciences, the University of Minnesota Extension, and the Cloquet Forestry Center. Thanks for tuning in and keep in touch.